Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about what we learned founding schools and how it applies, maybe, in other sectors of our lives, like leadership and team building and sports. So my guests today are Jerry Lynch and John O'Sullivan, and they're the authors of The Champion Teammate, Timeless Lessons to Connect, Compete, and Lead in Sports and Life. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Doug, it's an honor to be on. You've been on our podcast a few times, so it's great to be here with you. I'm looking forward to grilling you for payback. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there you go. So in your book, you say you set out to look at exceptional teammates, team dynamics, optimal performance and leadership. And one of the key ideas, I think, is that there are people on our teams who make others around them better, in part through their playing actions, but as much or more through their human interactions, and perhaps that the game-changing presence of these people is not an accident. Is that a fair summary of the book? What would you add? Do you want to elaborate on any of that? Jerry, you want to go first? Well, okay. It's a fair representation. I don't see it as a summary, with all due respect. But having said that, I like the way you say that. And if I heard it earlier, we would have maybe put that in the book on the cover. So it is good. But it's so much more. All behavior is a result. Everything that happens is a result of how we feel. So I have an expression that says feeling equals function. If you get up in the morning and you're feeling optimistic and you're feeling positive and confident, you're going to have a good day. But if it's the reverse and you're feeling pessimistic, you're losing confidence and you're depressed and you're down, you're probably not going to function at a high level. So what we're doing with this book, to pick up on your good comment, is to help everyone, coach as well, the coach, uh, each athlete. How can we make the environment so safe and so important that you want to be there and in in the process, you you bring your absolute best and you try to bring it out in others. And in a safe environment, by safe, I mean, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to lose. We lost the game on Saturday, but you know what? Guess what? We're better teammates. We're a better team because of it. And here's why. So yes, what, what we're trying to do is help athletes and coaches to create an environment that's going to help all of us bring out the best version of ourselves. And we do that through various techniques, strategies, tools, and what have you. So yeah, so that that's basically what I'm I'm thinking with that book. John, want to weigh in there? Yeah, I agree with Jerry in that, you know, the, the idea behind this is that groups of people, right, whether it's a classroom or a sports team or a sales team, You know, people have the same basic human needs. And number one, they want to belong. They want to be respected. They want to have a voice. They want to be cared for. And they want to, you know, sort of be passionate about what they're doing. And so we wanted to write a book because, you know, every kid who signs up for sports is told, be a great, be a great teammate, right? But they're not often taught how to be a great teammate. And so we wanted to write a book really focused on sort of the sort of middle school on up athlete, middle school, high school, college age, and and a way for coaches or those teams to sort of walk through this process of, you know, how how do I be someone who, who gives to my team and doesn't just get? How am I someone who develops these skills around leadership and around belonging and around just, you know, competing that don't just play well in sports, but play well in life? I mean, you know, people who are great teammates will always be in demand throughout their lives. And so we tell that to people all the time, but we don't teach them. And so we wanted to sort of help people learn. Yeah. It's fascinating because there's something sort of paradoxical there, which is, uh, you know, like a lot of the research on happiness says that people often confuse happiness with pleasure, but actually of the components of happiness, meaning making and 
connection actually correlate much more strongly to people's long-term happiness than pleasure. So it seems like part of what you're describing is that happiness through selflessness is, is part of the recipe here. There's a lot of the sort of discussion of how to become an other-focused team member. Let me jump in because I think this is important, Doug. And Jerry will disagree with this because he was an elite-level national champion marathoner and I wasn't. But what I always say, I always ask people to make that distinction right there between happiness or I would call it joy and pleasure is you know, I ask people, have you ever run a marathon? And people raise their hand. I say, you know, is there any pleasure mile 20 to 26? And everyone laughs just like you did. And they're like, of course not. It's, it's brutal. And I say, but you still love running, right? You still get joy and satisfaction out of running. And they all say yes. And I said, that's the difference between the two is that going after something and trying to reach your long-term goals and doing it by yourself or with a group of people, that's joy. That's happiness. And relationships have a lot to do with that. And it's not always pleasurable in the moment, but it can still bring great joy. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. The book that we put together, we make it really clear, Doug, that to be, and we make this distinction, to be a champion teammate, you be it right now. You don't become one. You have to commit to being one and then start chopping off the behaviors that allow you to be that. But joy and happiness, boy, those are two concepts that people have been discussing for 2,500 years and trying to get a handle on it. To me, the happiness piece is so important and joy. You know, Steve Kerr, we've had conversations with him about this on our podcast and he talks a lot about joy. That's the number one value that he places on on his coaching and on his team. Joy is sort of a uh, internal permanent way of being whereas happiness might be something like something that happens to you you just got the job or you you just got this book published and you're happy about it or it's uh, a holiday and you got off from work and and you're going to the beach with the family and you're really happy and it's hard to distinguish the two but it it's that feeling equals function again when i'm happy i have up days and down days but that happiness inside allows me to go forward amid the the foggy mornings with without seeing the sun and continue knowing that yeah the sun will come out but that's not what's going to make me happy i'm either going to be happy or i'm not and these are the behaviors you know they say happy Happiness is a habit. And so how do you form habits? By a series of behaviors repeated often for a long period of time. So happiness is something that we practice. And I believe that a lot of what we talk about in the book are items and, and, and strategies and, and tools that we practice. So you try it. You know, you go into an arena and you try this one thing that we're suggesting and oh, wow, what a reaction. But the next day you forget all about it. And you have to remind yourself, you know, okay, I have to come back to this and practice it over and over again, just like you're practicing your podcast or John and I are practicing our conferences or whatever. It's constant practice. You get better as you go. So therefore, older people have a very high probability of being happy because their perspective is from 30,000 feet. They don't always take advantage of that, but they can see the big picture and they're happy that they're alive. <laughs> and they're happy that they're able to function at some level and they appreciate that, which then leads into a conversation 
of gratefulness, which I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I want to come back to gratefulness, I think, because, uh, you know, gratitude is so powerful and maybe a little bit paradoxical. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about the book is how much it functions and functions really beautifully, I might I might say, just on some of the paradoxes of team building. So, for example, you say being a champion means possessing the specific traits of a champion. You describe them as courage, tenacity, persistence, fearlessness, and the willingness to suffer. And I would say that as someone who loves sports but wonders sometimes about if its role in society is become distorted, I wanted to both observe and ask, one, to observe that, that those aren't easy things to do. You know, Jerry, you said it's a lot of work, but we also tell ourselves that this is why we play sports and this is why we value sports. But I guess to ask, it doesn't it, meaning the development of these characteristics of team building and selflessness and courage and persistence, it maybe doesn't happen as often as it might. I thought I might just ask you both to, to talk a little bit about why, you know, if we have these aspirational visions for sport as character building and bringing out the best in our in our team selves, where does it break down? John, I know you write about this a lot, so maybe you want to you want to start us off here. I mean, I think there's a lot of societal factors that play into that. Our messages from social media, popular culture, movies have shifted from the idea of family and benevolence and things like that in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s to selfishness, greed, get mine, fame, all these sort of things, right? So I think that's part of it. Number one is the, the messages that today's children are bombarded with are not necessarily ones that play well with being a functional human being later in life, unless you become an influencer, which I think, I believe is the number one career <laughs> desired by today's <laughs> child. So right. that's a whole other podcast, right? But, you know, I, I think number two, just you know, then we have things like the high costs and high commitment of, of youth sport that have made it sort of the zero sum gain environment, right? Where if I see someone else getting ahead, then I must be falling behind. And I know, you know, I'll let, you know, Jerry, you know, who's an English teacher and loves to go to the Latin root of words, but I'll steal his thunder and, and talk about the Latin root of competition, which actually means to strive with, right? To strive together. That competition is really about you know, that us working hard lifts both of us. And, you know, I, I know you would appreciate this, Doug, because of your work in school. So I have a daughter who's going to be a senior in high school this year, and she's doing an IB diploma. And I went and spoke last year to her junior IB diploma cohort, 60 kids in her high school. And, you know, I was just like, you know, 60 of you all want to apply to the same 10 schools. Right. You're all looking at this is that if if any one of us gets ahead, I must be falling behind. But wouldn't it be better if we realize that we can actually lift each other up? And wouldn't school be more fulfilling and more enjoyable if we felt like we were all pulling for each other and striving for excellence and doing that? And we had a big discussion around it. And the kids are like, yes, like this doesn't feel good a lot of the time. But, you know, we could still all get a great education and do well and and have great lives and lift each other up at the same time. And, uh, you know, I, I think we see it more in sport, but we are seeing it in schools now too. My greatest race ever tagging along on John back in the competitive days, I finished 157th. I had my greatest race that day. And the reason I was 157 is because the 156 guys ahead of me were all D1 collegiate athletes and I was 40 years old. And, and the thing was, I just didn't, I didn't have what they had. 
but I had the greatest race of my life. And so what they did was they pulled me by me chasing them. I got to find a better version of myself. So in that sense, you know, we're on target. But to your point, Doug, I like that word breakdown because there's a lot of in our society, whether it's education or sports or school, whatever it happens to be, there's a lot of breakdown. But the thing to remember, and this keeps me going, is that we all crave the same thing. And what John and I are teaching through this book and beyond, we know people crave it. So we go in really confident, not cocky, but confident that we're going to present to you ways to be that's going to make your life better. Like who out there, raise your hand if you don't like to feel important, if you don't like to feel valued, empowered, relevant, respected. What about uh, the idea of who doesn't crave connection? Who doesn't crave being cared for or loved? So no matter where you go, whether it's Afghanistan or Africa or America, it doesn't matter. What matters is we all crave and want the same thing. So the breakdown is two things. Number one, as I see it. Now, this is just my opinion. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't have answers here. And I want to want to let you know, this is not the Bible that we're writing here. But I do know this, aside from craving it, we a, are not aware that we crave that. We don't think about it. So that's a breakdown right there. If I can create the, not if, when I create the awareness, now there's a second step. Now that you're aware, Doug, the second step is you've got to be mindful. And we teach mindfulness and how to be aware. And that's an important component. And many people don't know how to do that. John and I are really good at implementing our words. Like when you look at Ted Lasso on that locker room wall, there's a word that says believe. And that's really, that's an amazing word. However, how does it go from the wall to the ball? And that's implementation. So once we become aware what we crave, which is this safe, amazing environment of connection so that we'll all be better version of ourselves, once we're aware of that, now we have to be mindful on a day-to-day basis. And how do you become mindful? It's a learned skill like everything else. So all of this is connected and uh, the breakdown can be avoided. It's interesting because the book in many ways is a conversation about what you just described, which is the dance between individual and group which is, I think, you know, you're both describing individualism is a good thing, right? It's hard to look at China and Russia right now and not recognize how powerful a good individualism is in the world. And, you know, we live in the most individualistic, individualistic society at the most individualistic time in history. And yet we evolved in groups and survived because we were able to form groups. And I think we, you know, we are groupish, even though we don't necessarily recognize it. And so, you know, we're, ha- we're drawn to individualism, but we're happy, we're happiest when we're, we're part of a functioning group. And I think the book is about how can I build a group atmosphere that helps people to actualize themselves individually? How can I build a collective atmosphere that socializes people to bring out the best in themselves? It's a bit of a paradox. I don't know if you want to if you want to talk about that at all. I think so. Jerry and I just a couple weeks ago did a conference in Denver that we do every year called the Way of Champions, and uh, we had Phil Jackson present for us. And obviously, there's someone who won championships as a player and eleven as a coach. And he told our attendees this really interesting story about coming into the Bulls and sitting down with Michael Jordan and saying, "Michael." Last three years, you averaged 36, 38, and 37 points a game. Do you know when the last time 
was that a person won a scoring championship and an NBA championship. It's been 25 years. And he said, you know, we want to run this new offense, which is more about ball movement and whatever. And he said, Michael Jordan was like, wait, do you want like egalitarian? He said, no, there's six seconds on the shot clock and we haven't got a shot. We're getting the ball to you and we want you to score. Right. But if we if we do this and maybe you score 32 and we win a championship, wouldn't it be worth it, right? And so what he was asking Michael Jordan to go from me to we, and if I can give up, if I can give a little more to the team and give up a little more of myself for the greater good, we're going to be a better team and we're going to win championships. And, th- and that's what happened. And I think this is the story that we have to keep in this most individualistic, most selfish time in history we have to really probably teach this a lot more than I feel like when I was growing up 50 years ago. Just to piggyback on that, and maybe I'll throw this uh, your way, Jerry, which is I think a lot of people have probably tried to do what Phil Jackson did, which is say to an elite individual, a star individual, I love what you do, and I want you to balance it a little bit more, and I want you to be attentive to the team because we only can really succeed together. And have probably failed, have <laughs> tried to do that and have failed. I think that's one of the interesting things about the book, which is in many ways, I think you're uncovering like, what are the preliminary steps that have to happen to ask someone to make that decision? And you say in the book that it starts with relationships. Your first chapter is is, uh, deeply about relationship building. And I wonder if you could just start and maybe summarizing a couple of your key thoughts about relationships here. Yeah. Well, you know, John, I'll just jump on that. But the operative word there is trust. So Michael totally trusted Phil. And, uh, Why do you trust someone? You trust someone when they're being honest, when they're being authentic, genuine, vulnerable, you know, like me to say to you, I don't have all the answers. And once that trust is established, your heart opens up, meaning that part of your brain, which is receptive to change. One of his uh, protégés, Steve Kerr from Phil Jackson. And by the way, just as an aside, Michael did find Steve Kerr on the open wing and he drained a three-pointer for the national champion for the world championship, (laughs) right? right? right. And Michael could have just selfishly maybe scored the basket himself, but Steve was more open. But this idea of uh, trust is, is pivotal in a lot of what we're writing. Even if we don't call it a book of trust, everything in that book builds and secures and solidifies that element of trust. So Steve Kerr, one time, he's done this a lot, but he went up to Iguodala and when he was when they were recruiting him, and he was like 15 years started every single NBA game of his life and was one of the top leading scorers on the team, was an all-star eight times. And here's Steve going over to him and he's saying, you know, I'm just asking you if you would consider coming off the bench in my system, because I think that's going to be the way we're going to win a championship. That's the way we're going to succeed. And he thought for a moment, he said, wow, coach, you know, something to the effect of that's asking a lot, but honestly, I trust you. And I've heard a lot of things about you that I really like, and I'm going to go with that. And if it helps the team, I'm, I'm all in. So the, the idea of, of giving and the idea of working like that means you have to build that trust. You have to be a leader. And that leader could be an athlete on the team so that the other, their teammates trust that athlete. And a lot of what we write about helps those athletes to, to develop that trust from their teammates. But it goes both ways. The coach has got to trust the athletes. The athletes got to trust the coach. In the system, no trust, no functioning. It's, it's that simple. I'd like to ask just a quick follow-up question. Maybe, John, you want to take this one. 
first of all, I love the book. I think it's, it's, it's really insightful and uh, it's told in a series of really elegant stories that I want to come to. But this is maybe a slight devil's advocate question, which is the conversation about relationships happens a lot in schools. And oftentimes the way that teachers interpret it is by saying they don't care what you say until they know that you care. And the way that teachers maybe interpret that is by saying, I can't start teaching until everyone trusts me. And I think that the counter argument to that might be that how do they know they can trust you until you show that you can teach them and that you're willing to teach them and that you're serious about teaching them? You know, when you describe Steve Kerr and Phil Jackson having these sort of immensely influential conversations based on trust with athletes, I wonder if part of it is also their competence, that they're such good coaches and so capable that like, if it's me and I want to build trust, I want to walk in, I want to start teaching you really well and really attentively and using my teaching as a tool to show that I care about getting you better, but I can get you better. I suspect if you walk into an NBA locker room and you say, I want you to make sacrifices and you walk out on the court and your practice is not well designed and not well run and you, you know, guys are not convinced that you know what you're good at human development, then you struggle to get people to make those self-sacrifices. Just, I guess that's a question about relationships and how and, and where it starts and what the role of, of, competence and skill as a teacher and a coach where that comes down in relationship building. I think they're all incredibly important and and probably equally important and and sometimes one more so than the other. And I mean, Steve has said that to us on numerous occasions when we've talked about authenticity or vulnerability. He says, you can be great and vulnerable, but if you don't know what you're talking about, you're, you're, you're out, right? So I think just like we're never just teaching one thing, right? In a classroom lesson or a coaching session, I can have a technical component where I'm demonstrating my competency in organization, but I can also have a psychosocial component where I am building community and I am speaking and connecting and listening in a way that builds that trust. So yeah, you as a as a teacher, as a coach, you don't go through, you, you don't sit there and go, wow, I can't start teaching until they trust me. No, you start teaching. But you start teaching and at the same time, you build trust. And like Jerry was saying, that how do I build trust while I'm teaching? If you have a question, I, I listen. I validate what you said. I validate your question. I make you feel valuable and important to this classroom or to this team. And I do that, not I, but a great coach, a great teacher does that all at the same time, right? That's competency in, in teaching and, and coaching right there is the ability to balance those things. But once an athlete or a student knows, hey, te this teacher's in it for me, then you get to have those difficult conversations when you call people out, when you sort of, I, I call it, you know, you make a lot of deposits so that you can make a couple withdrawals. And that's great teaching. And no one, I have never met a person ever who, when they talk about a transformational teacher in their life, says, yeah, he or she just let me slide by. Right. Right. They love to tell the story of, yeah, how much they demanded of me. Right? How yeah. much they demanded and how much I cursed their name in the moment, but I appreciate them now. And I know that's my and Jerry's story and, and many others. And my advice to anyone listening is you start teaching right? You start coaching and you demonstrate your competence, but you do it in a way that people know that I'm doing this because I'm in it for you and I care. And if you do that, you're going to be just fine. And, and let me add this, John, it's brilliant what you just said. Plus, there's another element that we often overlook. If you want to gain people's trust, as simple as this sound, it's true. You have to trust them. 
You can't be up there dictating things and not trusting them and questioning every move they make or, or, or looking over their shoulder all the time. You have to demonstrate that you trust them in order to win their trust. When that happens, trust begins. And of course, teaching is a big part of that. But this whole thing about the relationship game and demanding, what John and I teach is when we walk into a room, one of the first things we want to do of most importance is we want to build a foundation. And sometimes that foundation takes 35, 40 minutes. Sometimes it takes 35 or 40 years. But what we do is we immediately have in our mindful state a way to make that connection with the audience, to make a connection with the team, to demonstrate our caring, and then listen to them. And the listening process means that, oh, coach, trust me. What I say is valuable. And he's going to do that. And he's going to give me trust. And once that foundation is built, what I say is that you can demand anything you want. I mean, it's amazing. We have examples of so many people that are so demanding, in-your-face type of leadership. But everyone knows that the coach loves them. You know, it's like last, I was watching Popovich uh, get inducted into the, uh, thanks for sending that, John, uh, the Hall of Fame the other day. And uh, these four stars are sitting there, Manu Ginobili and, and Tony Parker and Tim Duncan and Robinson. And, and these are like amazing athletes. And you know what? They all said, coach got in our face. You know, there were times when Dean even maybe deserve it, but he got in our face and we accepted it because basically they were saying, because we knew that there was a tremendous, great connection and love and caring. And there was a lot of trust. One of the other themes of the book on relationships is I think mindfulness. And you tell a really beautiful story, I think about the great Spanish midfielder, Carlos Puyol. And you say he's a great example of being a thermostat and not a thermometer. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the difference is and, and how you see how you see that functioning. Yeah, for sure. So for those who aren't soccer fans, Carlos Puyol was the captain of some great Barcelona teams, uh, grew up in La Masia, their famous academy and and teams filled with stars such as Messi and Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets. Puyol was the captain. And what we wrote about in that chapter is, you know, the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer takes the temperature of the room. And any of us who have been coaching or been teaching know that, you know, there's lots of people that, you know, on the days when the temperature is right, they're fantastic. And when it turns sour, they turn sour just like everyone else. But the importance, you know, being a champion teammate is learning how to be a thermostat because a thermostat adjusts the temperature in the room, right? A thermostat knows when you need to turn it up a bit because the effort, the focus are not there. And they also know when you need to turn it down. So if anyone wants to see examples, you can just, you know, Google Carlos Puyol, I forget what, you know, teammate or something like that. And there's all this video of him diffusing situations, stopping his teammates from over-celebrating a goal, being respectful to opponents, getting slapped in the face and turning and walking the other way, where if anyone watches world soccer, you know, it turns into an all-out ruckus. You're supposed to flop on the floor then and pretend like you've been shot. Get stretchered yeah. off, you know, <laughs> and, and, and he just played with this integrity, but also, you know, kept his teammates focused on the right things. And so being a great teammate is about, you know, having the courage and the respect to turn the temperature up what it needs to go up and 
turn it down when it needs to go down instead of just being along for the ride of whatever is going to happen on the day. And uh, it's funny, I get a lot of questions about that because it's an interesting concept. But when you talk about it, like if I, you ask any coach, who are your thermostats and who are just your thermometers, they could tell you in a second. It's interesting. One of the other things you talk about, you're talking about in, in this section of the book, you're talking about Steve Kerr and his, his culture with the Warriors. And you say it only takes one mindless teammate demonstrating selfish acts on a consistent basis to completely destroy a positive team culture. When you see this happening, the issue must be addressed, preferably by peers expressing their concerns. I think that's fascinating and it seems right, but it also seems like a pretty high difficulty dive with a significant chance of disaster. You know, it could be my Carlos Puyol who steps in, my most mindful teammate, and it could be, you know, my most impulsive teammate who steps in. Can you just talk us through that a little bit of how you build a culture where one, you step in when people violate the norm when people violate the norms of selflessness? And two, how you create a culture where teammates can do that successfully without recrimination and spiraling up the tension. Because you could imagine how that could go south. We talk a lot about standards and rules. You know, a lot of coaches, they, they, they come up with all these rules and they've got to defend them and they've got to always monitor them. And it's a lot of work. I tell my coaches that I'm working with, I said, you only need one rule and that is do the right thing. You get an athlete who's who's going out on a Friday night when they got a Saturday morning game or a Saturday afternoon game. Uh, that's not the right thing to do. And uh, if they don't know it's not right, well, this is the time that they learn because sports becomes our teacher, not just for the game, but the game of life. And uh, that's the orientation that John and I take. But this idea of standards, if you have standards, you include the team in the development of these standards. You don't go in and give them the 10 standards according to John or the 10 standards according to Doug. What we do is we have a meeting and sometimes this takes a while. Maybe it takes a couple of meetings. But what are the standards that we want to uh, have for our organization, our team, our, our culture that we really feel if we live up to these will be, will be the best version of ourselves? And that's how you couch it. It's, it's not punitive. It's developmental. And what we want to do is create an environment where people have a say and then they have to live up to the standards that they're setting so they get buy-in right away because this is my standard. I'm going to live up to this. And if my teammate's not doing it, I'm going to be insulted by that. And we're going to come together. And so you get a, you get a culture which, which gets buy-in, but there's a lot of ownership because they've had a voice, which then leads to trust and respect and what have you. So all of, these are human behaviors. These, I see this in families when, when, when the kids have a voice and it doesn't mean they run the show because ultimately you have the last say as a parent, you know, that you don't want the kid to be jumping off bridges. You, 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 you want to be able to set the standards, come together and like, how are we going to do this? We have eight things we need to do with this family. We divide this up and this is the standard that we're holding. And once you do that, I believe the journey is a, makes a lot more sense. And, and, and I feel more connected to this culture because culture is, is, is going to be there one way or the other. And it's either going to be functional or it's going to be dysfunctional. And in our society, there's a lot of dysfunctional families. And I use the word family on purpose because what John and I do is we, we create la familia, the Spanish term for family. And when you feel like you're part of a family, it's bigger than you, you, you tend to Go the distance. You, you you tend to on a Saturday afternoon. You you tend to stand up and and, and save each other and help each other, and, and so all of this is is deeply connected. And what we're teaching is 
what people crave. I want to come back to that statement. We all crave a functional family. Raise your hand if you don't. Everyone in that room is going to say, yes, I do. They might not know how. They might be aware. So what we're doing with this book is helping to create that awareness so that we can be mindful and have the uh, nominal leader, i.e. a coach, help others to learn how to become leaders so that the coach can stand back and all that group can say the most wonderful phrase, which is we did it ourselves. Yeah. I'm listening to you as you talk. You use the phrase nominal leader. I mean, I think that that really is how coaches like Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr uh, and others who you've mentioned work. I'm also thinking about how maybe like Vince Lombardi might, you know, the generation one of great coaches might've thought, you know, might've thought about that phrase and that maybe some number of years ago, coaching was more directive, more dictatorial, more my way or the highway. Even, even the great John Wooden, who I think was such a great teacher, you know, there's a sort of iconic story of him, telling Bill Walton to either get his haircut or shave his beard. And Bill Walton said, I, you know, I, I really don't want to. And John Wooden said, you know, I really appreciate you standing up for your convictions and we're sure going to miss you around here, which um, <laughs> maybe I don't know if that's a, a lesser told story about John Wooden. And I'm sharing this just because I'm, I want to ask you, in your opinion, are athletes changing? Is there a generational shift in athletes that they expect to be more bought into the process, to be more co-designers and co-participants in the culture? And if so, how is this book different from what you would have written, say, 20 years ago? This is really important stuff that you're hitting upon. I just want to back up a bit with John Wooden did say that, or at least some of those words, uh, and it's pretty accurate from what I can understand. But he was being transformational as opposed to transactional. The transactional Vince Lombardi coaches say, hey, screw you get rid of that beard. Next time, if you want to come in this room, you go home, you shave that beard off, you change that tie-dye shirt because this is not what we do here. He was giving him the choice. You know, it was a transformation. It was power. It was not power over him. It was power to, and that power was to influence Bill Walton. And, and that's the kind of coaches. And that was back in the 70s, right? 71, 72, something like that, which now has become 50 years. It seems like it's yesterday to me, but it's it's a long time ago, but we've been going in that direction so that coaches like Quinn Snyder, coaches like Cindy Timshall or, or Tara Vanderveer at Stanford and uh, yeah, Steve and, and Pop and all these people, they understand that the generation now does not function that way or will not function with that kind of approach. So what, what they're craving is a more transformative approach, which allows the human being to have a choice in their decisions and, and their life. And, and, and that's what's important because then you, that's when you get buy-in. That's when you get respect. That's when you get trust. That's when you get courage. That's when the environment creates mental toughness. You know, all these psychologists running around in my profession trying to develop a program in mental toughness. Just make the environment safe. You'll see toughness. You'll see people jump through walls if they know they're not going to be criticized for it. So we have all of these possibilities in a transformative culture, uh, as opposed to what was at one time transactional. I think, Doug, the, you know, the, the art of coaching, the art of teaching is doing the dance between freedom and discipline, right, is, is between no structure and structure, right? Because we all know that, you know, children with no structure, no discipline can really go off the rails and too much you, you lose creativity, right? So how do you find that balance? And, and you know, when do you open it up and, and when do you pull it back? And you know, I think one of the great brilliance of a John Wooden that is often overlooked 
and he talked about this really when he started coaching. He's like, you know who my first players were? They were all soldiers coming back from the Korean War. So they were all used to, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever the lieutenant says slash the coach says, I will do. And by the 70s, that is not Bill Walton. That is not Lou Alcindor, right? And so if I did the same thing, you know, I was not going to get what I wanted, which was full developmental potential of these human beings. And so fast forward, as Jerry said, 50 years to today, where, you know, Gen Z kids have, you know, they, they grow up around electronics, tons of screen time, answer at their fingertips. They want to know why they have shorter attention spans, things like that. So giving them some ownership and some say, but yet you remain the ultimate decision maker, right? And, and, when we build a culture, it's still like, you know, hey, you've joined this team to be more like us, not so we can all change to be more like you. That's that's the art of coaching is how do you develop each individual within that, the these, as Jerry said, these standards or values or whatever you want to call them um, that we've decided upon as a group. It's really important. It is. It's interesting not to go back to that word paradox, but good coaching, good people development really does have to understand and be mindful of and reflect the culture but also in some ways what you're building is a subculture within the culture that you know you talked about young people today are they're changed by their cell phones and by social media and they're constantly presented with instant gratification and attention fracturing and you know you know and yet one of the things you talk about in the book is building the capacity to endure and what a gift that is to to young people to set up a culture that is different from that is both reflective of but different from the outside culture and i guess you would say that great teams are built around not just a coach a coach and his or her staff a coach and his or her staff and his or her team being able to build an intact meaningful culture that both reflects but also changes or distorts or maybe even dissents from the the overall culture i wonder if you want to pick up on that john and just talk about that sort of you described it as a dance. Yeah, it, 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 it is a dance. And the dance changes every year as your personnel changes, right? And uh, every coach has to decide, you know, how many dance partners can I handle that aren't going to buy in? How many Dennis Rodmans? How many, you know, people who are going to push back against the culture can we absorb before it, it falls apart? And I can't answer that for anyone. They have to answer that for themselves. But I, you know, I, I think all these things that we know in our hearts, right, a, as a parent, right, that the things that I'm most proud of, the best accomplishments in my life, they come with struggle. They come with suffering, right? Learning happens on the most difficult reps, just like it does in the weight room, right? And I need to have those difficult reps. And yet every instinct that we have as a parent, and certainly parenting is shifted in this way to protect your kids from anything that might be difficult, to shield them from tough decisions or outcomes that they don't like instead of saying, well, what's good about this? What did you learn? What are the consequences so that you do it? But, but I mean, life will eventually, you know, punch you in the face. And if you've never gotten any reps dealing with harsh consequences, it's hard. And so we have a generation, I think, of parents that in school are so afraid. And I, again, I think it's really driven by fear. They're so afraid that that B on a transcript is going to ruin their kid's life. They're so afraid that not making the A team or the all-star team is going to ruin their kid's life instead of saying, all right, like there's some adversity, right? 
how do we learn from it? How do we grow from adversity? Because they don't really take a look and say, wow, most of my growth came from adversity as well. And there's a whole, again, it's society, it's keeping up with the Joneses. It's afraid that if we don't get into one of these 20 schools or 50 schools, you know, it's been a waste of time. And there's so much that goes into that that's really, really sad because we destroy so many wonderful learning opportunities for our children that school and sport provides by swooping in and saving them from feeling lousy in the moment. One of my favorite chapters was the chapter entitled Give Everyone a Role which is about making it meaningful for everyone. And the example in the chapter is a, you know, a player who's not getting any playing time but is indispensable to the team. I hope you'll talk about that because I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a lot of research on, you know, that again, that meaning equates to happiness more than pleasure. But I also think that a common maybe blind spot among coaches is members of their staff and finding meaning for like assistant coaches and other and other members of the coaching staff and how to make them feel like they are contributing every day. So I wonder if maybe just as you're reflecting on this idea of giving giving everyone a role, if you could broaden it a little bit to, to talk about your own team, your coaching staff as well. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what Jerry said before, when you make people feel respected and important and valued and empowered and, you know, all this, that's when they perform their best. And so the story in that chapter is, you know, I played college soccer at Fordham University in New York City and a couple of years ago in, in what was their greatest, still the greatest season ever in program history, they're in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament and they're in a penalty shootout against Duke University. And it goes to the 10th round and who steps up but a kid named Jordan Black, who was their reserve goalkeeper who hadn't played a single minute the entire season. And yet he's given the opportunity to take the most important kick in program history and he buries it and they win the shootout, right? And they go to the to the Elite Eight. And, you know, when you talk to his coach at the time, Jim McKeldry, Jim would tell you like, man, you know, he was just a great teammate. And when I talked to Jordan about it, the whole story, he said, it's funny because I wasn't always a great teammate. It's something that I decided to be later on when I realized I was stuck behind a fantastic goalkeeper who's still playing professionally today. And I could either sulk and be miserable or I could find a role, lift people up and do things. And and I did. And so that's something that that I made this decision to be later on. And I think that is a great story. And so they found a way to give Jordan a role, which resulted in this incredible moment. But as a coach, you're, you're exactly right. If, if you just only use your assistant coaches to pick up cones and balls and jump when the numbers are wrong, they're not going to feel valued. You have to give them opportunities to run practice to do that. And then you find a different role as a coach. And the coaches that I mentor, I always encourage them to do this. Like hand over practice to your assistants and spend the day connecting one-on-one -on -one with your athletes, which you can't do when you're in charge of the activity. And it's incredibly powerful. They're all like, I talked to one coach yesterday, the water polo coach, and he's like, it's been amazing. They love it because they're running practice. And I love it because I am connecting with kids better than I ever have before. And John, to your point, when you, when, when you look at the great coaches, which I've had an amazing opportunity and was blessed with, like watching a practice that Coach K runs at, at Duke University when he was coaching there, he's on the sideline and his assistants are out there, as you say, and they're running a whole show and he's training them to be head coaches someday. So there's another element of what he's trying to do there. And then he calls a player over one at a time, you know, we call him over, come over here, just down. He talks to them. 
All the great coaches I've noticed do this. You can see the forest a little bit more than the trees sometimes when you step back, I bet. Maybe we could just close by talking about one of the topics that you closed the book with, which is gratitude. And Jerry, you've already mentioned this and how important and how transformative it is. But I thought that was a really just a hugely important topic because it has so beneficial to people psychologically to express gratitude. And do you mind just talking a little bit about about the role of gratitude in team building? I'm honored to talk about gratitude because I personally feel in my life when I made that big change from appreciation to gratitude. Uh, my whole life changed. We appreciate things. I, I, I talk to my kids. I got four children and, you know, they'll say, I really appreciate you. I, well, yeah, I'm, I'm feeding you or I'm giving you this or whatever. I, I, can, I appreciate that too. Appreciation is something that goes on in the head. It's, it's, it's an analysis of a situation. I appreciate that. Gratitude comes more from the heart. It's a feeling, a deep feeling of having been given so much that you want so much to give back for what you've been given. So it's really important to me first in that way, personally. But what I've noticed, Doug, over the years, again, we're talking about, you know, approximately 118, if not a few more championships of teams that I've had the honor of working with. Every single one of those teams, we talked about gratefulness. Every one of those teams had at least one session on identifying what they were grateful about. I had a, uh, an exercise I used to do before big, important games. I would gather them in a circle and I'd tell them to think about five things that they're grateful for today. And some of them would put down their friends, their teammates, their opportunities, their health. Some might even put me down there. I'm grateful for Jerry to be here and what have you. And of course, I was always grateful for them. And at the end of that, I said, okay, just breathe that feeling because it is a feeling of being grateful and make it surround, bring, bring the breath in, just hold it there around your heart, release the breath. Now, I want you to go out there and play tonight's game and make it a reflection for everything you've been given. And it's like, OMG, they're all over it. And the coach in the circle, before they go out in the field, remember everything that you've been given, play like it. Give back right now for all that you've been given. So gratitude is is a feeling word, and it's deep, and it's something that I find all champions, whether they're crowned a champion or not, tends to understand that they've been given a lot. And therefore, rather than asking the question, which a lot of young people do these days is, what can I get out of this? It's coach, how can I give to this situation? My guests today have been Jerry Lynch and John O'Sullivan. They are the authors of The Champion Teammate, Timeless Lessons to Connect, Compete and Lead in Sports and Life. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. It's been fascinating and incredibly worthwhile. And I'm grateful for it. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure meeting you and being here today. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.